This is Island Waves, and you are listening to The Book Nook. Listening to Island Waves. Join us today as we journey along with Baroness Karen Blixen in her published memoirs, Out of Africa. Published under the nom de plume, Isaac Dennison. Come along on her journey. took over management of the farm, I had been keen on shooting and had been on many safaris. But when I became a farmer, I put away my rifles. The Maasai, the nomadic cattle-owning nation, were neighbors of the farm and lived on the other side of the river. From time to time, some of them would come to my home to complain about a lion or two that was taking their cows, and they would ask me to go out and shoot it for them. And I did so if I could. Sometimes on a Saturday, I would also walk out to the Ungi Plains and shoot a zebra or two as meat for my farm laborers with a long tail of optimistic young Kikuyu after me. I shot birds on the farm, superfowl and guinea fowl. They are very good to eat, but for many years I was not out on any shooting expedition. And still we often talked on the farm of the safaris that we had been on. Camping places fixed themselves in your mind as if you had spent long periods of your life in them. You will recall the curve of your wagon track and the grass of the plain like the features of a long-lost friend. Out on the safaris, I had seen a herd of buffalo, 129 of them, come out one morning mist under a copper sky one by one as if the dark and massive iron-like animals with mighty horizontally swung horns were not approaching but instead were being created before my very eyes and sent out as they were finished. I had seen a herd of elephants traveling through the dense native forest where the sunlight is coming through like creepers in small spots and patches, pacing along as if they had an appointment at the end of the world. 
It was, in giant size, the border of a very old, infinitely precious Persian carpet in dyes of green and yellow and black and brown. I had time after time watched the progression across the plain of the giraffe in their queer gracefulness as if it were not a herd of animals at all, but of a family of rare, long-stemmed, speckled, gigantic flowers slowly advancing. I had followed two rhinos on their morning promenade when they were sniffling and snorting in the air of the dawn, which is so cold that it hurts the nose, and they looked like two very big angular stones rollicking in the long valley and enjoying life together. I had seen the royal lion before sunrise below a waning moon crossing the gray plain on his way home from the kill, drawing a dark wake in the silvery glass of the face of the red of the sky. And during its midday siesta, when he reposed contentedly in the midst of his family on the short grass and in the delicate spring-like shade of the broad acacia trees of his park of Africa. All of these things were pleasant to think of when times were dull on the farm and the big game was out there still in their own country. I could go and look up them once more if I liked. Their nearness gave a shine and play to the atmosphere of the farm. Barah, although with time, he came to take a vivid interest in farm affairs and my old native safari servants lived in hope of other safaris. Out in the wilds, I had learned to be beware of abrupt movements. The creatures with which you are dealing there are shy and watchful. They have a talent for evading you when at least you expect it. No domestic animal can be still as a wild animal. The civilized people have lost the aptitude of stillness, and they must accept and take lessons in silence from the wild before they are accepted by it. The art of moving gently without suddenness is the first to be studied by the hunter and more so by the hunter with the camera. Hunters cannot have their own way. They must fall in with the wind and the colors and the smells of the landscape and they must make the tempo of the ensemble their own. Sometimes it repeats a movement over and over again, and they must follow up with it. When you have caught the rhythm of Africa, you find it is the same in all of her music. What I learned from the game of the country was useful to me in my dealings with the native people. The love of woman and womanliness is a masculine characteristic and the love of man and manliness a feminine characteristic. And there is a susceptibility to the southern countries and races that is a Nordic quality. 
The Normans must have fallen in love with the foreign countries, first with France and then with England. Those old millards who figure in the history and fiction of the 18th century is constantly traveling their nature, but were drawn and held by the fascination of things wholly different from themselves. The old German and Scandinavian painters, philosophers, poets, when they first came to Florence and Rome, went down on their knees to adore the South. A sort of queer illogical patience toward an alien world came out in these impatient people. As it is almost impossible for a woman to irritate a real man, and as to the women, a man is never quite contemptible, never altogether rejectable, as long as he remains a man who were hasty, red-haired northern people, infinitely long-suffering with the tropical countries and races. They would stand no nonsense from their own country or their own relations, but they took the drought of the African highlands in a case of sunstroke, the rinderpest on their cattle, and the incompetency of their native servants with humility and resignation. Their sense of individuality itself was lost in the sense of the possibilities that lie in interaction between those who can be made one by reason of their incongruity. The people of Southern Europe and the people of mixed blood have not got this quality. They, they blame it or they scorn it. So if the men's men scorn the sighing lover and the rational women who have no patience with their men are in the same way indignant with Griselda. As for me, for my first weeks in Africa, I had felt a great affection for the natives. It, it was a sort of strong feeling that embraced all ages. The discovery of their dark race was to me a magnificent enlargement of all my world, and if a person with an inborn sympathy for animals had grown up with a milieu where there were no animals and had come into contact with animals late in life, or if a person with an instinctive taste for woods and forest had entered a forest for the first time at the age of 20, or if someone with an ear for music had happened to hear music for the first time when he was already grown up, their cases may have been similar to mine. After I had met with the natives, I set out the routine of my daily life to the orchestra. My father was an officer in the Danish and French army, and as a very young lieutenant at Dubai, he wrote home, Back in Dubai, I was an officer to a long column. It was work, but it was splendid. The love of war is a passion like another. You love soldiers as you love young women folk. To madness and one love does not exclude the other as the girls well know. But the love of women can include only one at a time and the love for your soldiers comprehends the whole regiment which you would like enlarged if it were possible. It was the same thing with the natives and me. It was not easy to get to know the natives. They were quick of hearing and effervescent. 
If you frightened them, they could withdraw into a world of their own in a second like the wild animals which at an abrupt movement from you are gone, and they're simply not there. Until you knew a native well, it was almost impossible to get a straight answer from him. To a direct question as how many cows he had, he had an eluding reply, as many as I told you yesterday. It goes against the feelings of Europeans to be answered in such a manner. It very likely goes against the feelings of natives to be questioned in this very way. And if we pressed or pursued them to get an explanation of their behavior out of them, they receded as long as they possibly could, and then they used a grotesque, humorous fantasy to lead us on the wrong track. Even the small children in this situation had all the quality of old poker players who do not mind if you overvalue or undervalue their hand so long as you do not know its real nature. When we really did break up into the natives' existence, they behaved like ants when you poke a stick into their anthill. They wiped out the damage with unwearied energy, swiftly and silently, as if obliterating unseeming action. We could not know and could not imagine what the dangers were that they feared from our hands. I myself think that they were afraid of us more in the manner in which you are afraid of a sudden terrific noise than you were afraid of suffering and death. And yet, and yet, it was difficult to tell, for the natives were great at the art of mimicry. In the Shambas, you would sometimes in the early morning come upon a spurned fowl, which would run in front of your horse as if her wing were broken, and she were terrified of being caught by the dogs. She could whirr up before the moment she chose only if she had her brood of young chickens somewhere nearby and she was drawing our attention away from them. Like the spur fowl, the natives might be mimicking a fear of us because of some other deeper dread, the nature of which we could not guess. Or, in the end, their behavior to us might be some sort of strange joke and the shy people were not afraid of us at all. The natives have far less than the white people. They have less sense of risk of life. Sometimes on safari or on the farm, in a moment of extreme tension, I have met the eyes of my native companions and have felt we were at a great distance from one another and that they were wondering at my apprehension of our risk. It made me reflect that perhaps they were in life itself within their own elements such as we can never be, like fishes in deep water for which the life of them cannot understand our fear of drowning. This assurance, this art of swimming they had, I thought because they had preserved a knowledge that was lost to us by our first parents. Africa, among the continents, will teach it to you that God and the devil are one, the majesty co-eternal, not only two created, but one uncreated, and the natives neither confounded the persons nor divided the substance.
On our safaris and on the farm, my acquaintance with the natives developed into a settled and personal relationship. We were good friends, and I reconciled myself to the fact that while I should never quite know or understand them, they knew me through and through, and we were conscious of the decisions that I was going to take before I was certain about them myself. For some time, I had a small farm up in the Gilgil, where I lived in a tent and I traveled by the rail to and from Gilgil and Nigong. At Gilgil, I might make up my mind very suddenly when it began to rain to go back to my house. But when I came to Kikuyu, which was our station on the railway line, and from where it was then ten miles to the farm, one of my people would be there with a mule for me to ride on home. And when I asked them how they had known that I was coming down, they looked away and seemed uneasy, as if frightened or bored, such as we should be if a deaf person insisted on getting an explanation of a symphony from us. And when the natives felt safe with us from abrupt movements and sudden noises, they would speak to us a great deal more openly than one European speaks to another. A good name, what is called prestige, meant much in the native world. They seemed to have made it up at some time, a joint apprisement of Yule against which no one would everywhere ever, ever go. At times, life on the farm was very lonely, and in that stillness of the evenings, when the minutes drift from the clock, life seemed to be dripping out of you with them, just for want of people to talk to. Yet, all the time, I felt the silent, overshadowed existence of the natives running parallel with my own on a different plane. Echoes went from one to the other. The natives were Africa in flesh and blood, the tall, instinct volcano of Longanalt that rises over the Rift Valley, the broad mimosa trees along the rivers, and the elephant and the giraffe were not more truly Africa than the natives were themselves, small figures in an immense scenery. All were different expressions of one idea, variations upon the same theme. It was a congenial upheaping of heterogeneous atoms, but a heterogeneous upheaping of congenial atoms, as in the case of the oak leaf and the acorn and the object made from oak. We ourselves in boots and in our constant great hurry often jaw with the landscape. The natives are in accordance with it, and when the tall, slim, dark, and dark-odd people travel, always one by one, so that even the great native veins of traffic are narrow footpaths, or work the soil, or herd the cattle, or hold their big dances and tell you a tale, it is Africa wandering, dancing, and entertaining you. In those highlands, you remember the poet's words. Noble found I ever the native and insipid the immigrant. The colony is changing and has already changed since I lived there. 
when I write down as accurately as possible my experiences on the farm with the country and some of the inhabitants of the plains and the woods, it may have a sort of historical interest. You've been listening to Out of Africa. The letters from Karen Blixen on her journey. Join us again on the Book Nook, here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.